With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode is presented by Warner Brothers' Star is Born, starring Bradley Cooper, Lady Gaga, and Sam Elliott in their Academy Award-nominated performances. Kenneth Turan of the Los Angeles Times calls it passionate, emotional, and fearless. For consideration in all categories, including Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay. Last weekend, Bohemian Rhapsody, which includes a remarkable recreation of Queen's iconic 1985 Live Aid performance, won two BAFTA awards, Best Actor for Rami Malek's portrayal of Queen frontman Freddie Mercury, and Best Sound, recognizing the sound editors and mixers that help put viewers on the stage with the band. The film is also nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Actor for Malik, Best Editing for John Ottman, sound editing for John Warhurst and Nina Hartstone, and sound mixing for Paul Massey, Tim Cavigan, and John Caselli. With a little more than a week to go before the 91st Academy Awards, today we'll be talking with re-recording mixer and music mixer Paul Massey about making the movie, working with Queen's Brian May and Roger Taylor, and the team's big night at the BAFTAs. I'm Carolyn Giardino. Welcome to Behind the Screen. Today I'm in a mixing room on the Fox lot with Paul Massey, for whom Bohemian Rhapsody marks his eighth Academy Award nomination. He was previously nominated for films including Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, Walk the Line, and The Martian. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So you just returned from London, where the sound team won the BAFTA. Yes, last weekend. Very exciting. Tell us a little bit about that experience. I see that you also met Prince William and Kate. We did. The whole event was very exciting and, and just a whirlwind of a weekend. We flew in on, uh, got in on Friday and left on Monday. And it was at the Royal Albert Hall, which was just a beautiful venue. Always enjoy the BAFTAs. They're great fun, sort of typical English low-key way, even though it's a party event. Just a great honor for us all to win BAFTA for Best Sound for Bohemian Rhapsody. And um, yeah, as you mentioned, Prince William and, and Kate were there in the audience. And, and at the end, we were all asked uh, as winners to go up onto the stage and have a class photo taken. And then it was announced that William and Kate would like to come and talk to us. 
And I thought, okay, this will just be a just a quick handshake and, uh, you know, very pleased to meet you kind of thing. But they actually spread us all out in a big semicircle and Kate started at one end and William started at the other end and we had full-on conversations with them as a group, which was quite remarkable. And they were extremely down-to-earth, talking about all kinds of things, not just the films. There was actually a point where Tim Cavigan asked Prince William what the rugby score was. <laughs> because I guess William is, is very close to the rugby league in Wales and England. And uh, so he, he looked relieved. He, he looked like, oh my gosh, finally I can talk about something else. And he, <laughs> he laughed and he was very cordial, very casual and answered Tim's questions. It was great fun. What did they ask you about the movie? Kate was very intrigued in terms of just the, the overall music. She said she really enjoyed the soundtrack and has always uh, enjoyed Queen's songs. So, you know, was it fun to work on? And she, she also asked what we were now working on. And of course, there's five of us, so we all had very different answers. And I, I can't really remember. I was, so, I was actually so sort of starstruck, if you will. It was like, a, wow, that was a cool moment, but I don't really remember what she said. <laughs> Now, at the BAFTAs, sound is one category, but for the upcoming Academy Awards, it's two. We have sound editing and sound mixing. For the uninitiated, would you explain the difference? Sound editing would apply to, in this case of Bohemian Rhapsody, John Warhurst and Nina Hartstone as supervising sound editors, plus their crew. It describes the accumulation of all of the tracks that would be required to come to the final mix and create the soundtrack for both dialogue, ADR, and all of the sound effects, foley, backgrounds, etc. In our case, John Warhurst looked after the music editorial as well. And so the sound editing award is applicable to how they assembled those tracks, how creative they got in assembling those tracks, going out and recording new sounds for the movie, custom for the movie, what decisions they made in terms of the sound designs of each scene and how they presented that to us as mixers. The sound mixing portion of it is then receiving the tracks from the sound editorial and then Tim Cavigan and I as re-recording mixers work with the entire filmmaking team to put together the final soundtrack and make decisions about what we should use and what we shouldn't use from the sound editors. That's really sort of in its most basic form, the difference between the two categories. Well, the music was clearly an enormous challenge throughout the film, but why don't we start with the finale, actually? So mm -hmm. tell us about how the Live Aid performance came together. Live Aid was obviously our biggest challenge throughout the film. From a music standpoint, I had access to all of the original tracks from the Live Aid performance in 1985 in multi-track form. That must have been form. fascinating. It, it was incredible. I mean, also for the rest of the film, I had access to all the original live recordings and studio recordings in multi-track form. Queen has three engineers, Shirley Smith, Chris Fredrickson, and Josh McRae, who work exclusively with Queen and manage all of their material from now and in the past and archive everything. So it's all been taken away from... It's all been transferred from original multi-tracks into digital form on Pro Tools now. And they worked with us very closely during the making of this film so that I had access to every single individual instrument throughout the entire scene of Live Aid. So that in itself was a huge challenge, just to mix it then and get the, that iconic sound of Queen back into the mix, but also with the access to all the different instruments, I was able to create the perspectives that we needed 
to be up on stage with the band and to emphasize, you know, Brian's guitar when we were right next to him, to emphasize Freddie when we were right up against his mouth and emphasize the cymbals when Roger's, the camera position is right next to Roger's cymbals and he's, he's hammering away. Those things were crucial. We weren't mixing from an overall mix, but from individual elements. Some really intricate work was involved in also using some of Rami Malik's even breaths to make it appear that he is singing those songs. Yeah, John Casali, our production sound mixer, recorded everything when they were shooting the film, which included Rami singing his heart out. I mean, he, he sang at full level during his performances of Live Aid and all of the performances. And so what that enabled us to do, because obviously we used Freddie's vocal as much as we possibly could all the way through the entire film and certainly through Live Aid, we were able to take inhales and consonants and certain phrases and words from Rami's performance and integrate those with Freddie's original performance so that we could sync it all up and create the illusion that Rami's acting that we were seeing and him singing his heart out was was coming with Freddie's vocal performance. It was very intricate and Nina Hartstone as a supervising dialogue editor did some amazing work to pull from all different sources to great with the the live Freddie vocals that I had access to from the from the original recordings. And then working closely with John Artman, our picture editor, we were able to slide shots slightly in terms of sync and do a combination of all of these things to make it appear that Rami's wonderful performance was was really Freddie. Now, throughout the film, in addition to the singing, you also had to create the different venues that they performed in. Now, in the case of Live Aid, it was Wembley Stadium in London, and you needed the sound of the stadium, you needed the crowds. Tell us a little bit about how you brought all of those elements together, because when you were watching it on the big screen, you you just felt like you were there. <laughs> right, right. And thank you. That was That was a huge challenge. Really, that's broken down into two parts. Again, for the music, for all of the performances, uh, I wanted to try and create a real-world environment. So that meant not just using the reverb tools and the delay tools that we all have readily available to us, but also we were able to access the O2 Arena in London last July. Queen was performing there. They had a doing performance a there with Adam Lambert. With Adam right? Lambert, yes. So we were able to, John Warhurst and the Queen engineers were able to set up a couple of hours of time where we could play back through their touring PA, their concert PA, at full level, all of the songs that we were going to need for the large venues, including Live Aid. And then they mic'd all around the arena with 22 different mics from the, the rafters all the way down to the, to the stage and captured the sound of the arena, captured the reverb, the natural reverb that that arena, the stadium, was creating when the PA was playing at full blast. And, of course, there was no audience in there, so... It was a very clean recording with nothing else interfering with it. So the first part of your, uh, the first part of the answer is that I was then able to take those recordings and create the perspectives of Wembley Stadium. When we're far back, I was relying heavily on the sound of the O2 Arena and the reverberance that that created. And then um, 
when we were up close to the to the band on stage, obviously there was less of that used and more of the direct signal from the individual instruments via the the multi tracks. So in that way, we managed to get a, a very real world perspective, hopefully, and and bring the, the cinema audience into that stadium for the performance. So that that dealt with the music side of things, and then with the crowd, there was a couple of days where there were six hundred extras on location at the shoot. And uh, John Casali and John Warhurst were able to set up some time to capture them singing along. What they did is they created a, a playback session of each individual line from song and then some space so that the crowd could sing that back without anything coming through the PA. For instance, they, they would go, Deo, and then silence from the PA. And then so the crowd would listen, the extras would listen to that, sing it back, and that would be recorded without music behind it, and then go on to the next line and the next line and the next line for all of those songs. Then they went back and did it again, so 600 people became 1,200. Then they did it again, so we had 1,800 people singing without music in the background, without any other noise, significant noise, singing along with all these songs. So again, that's a massive editorial job, but once we brought those units back into the mix... We had clean control on all of the crowd singing and could utilize that along with the stadium recording of the, uh, of the music to create a, a realistic audience. I guess there was one more part of that too, in that at the O2 Arena, at the concert I mentioned, Brian May, when they were actually doing the concert, Brian stopped the, the show for a moment and said, you know, who, who wants to be in the upcoming film? And of course, 15,000 fans went crazy and said, of course we do. And um, so he got them to do the, the famous stomp, stomp, clap for We Will Rock You. And he basically conducted them from stage again with no music playing, so we have very clean recordings of 14,000 people doing stumps and then individual claps. So we took those recordings and were able to utilize them along with the singing crowd, the stadium sound from the band, and the actual band tracks to create the entire environment in Live Aid. Brian May and Roger Taylor were very involved in the film. To what extent did you work with them? <laughs> they were fantastic. What a thrill that must have it been. Was, it was a massive thrill. I had to pinch myself every day going to work. I had asked for some uh, music pre-dub time, if you will, just work time to go through these multi-tracks that we were going to be dealing with in the final mix and just try and get some balances and some rough perspectives on what I would need to do during the final mix once we combined everything with, with crowd, etc. I'd asked for six days to work on that, and on the second day, Brian and Roger showed up, and I was, I won't lie, I was incredibly nervous. <laughs> <laughs> but they were just amazing, and um, I, I assume they've, they've very quickly put me at ease. They, they seemed to like what I was doing, and we had some great conversations from that point forward going through all of the songs. They would educate me on the sound that they wanted, and I was in turn trying to 
I guess, educate them as to how the sound could be utilized in, in Dolby Atmos in you know, 2018, 2019, because that was a territory that they were a little unfamiliar with coming from the record world. So it was a wonderful collaboration, and we really got on well, and they were there pretty much... Well, they were there for a couple of weeks with us, and then they had to go on tour. So I would send them mixes every night, and then they would send any comments back to me, and we'd make make those changes. And they were very involved all the way through the whole process for me. It was wonderful. What did they say when they saw the final scene? I think they were thrilled, and and and... Well, I know they were thrilled, but they were somewhat shocked in the way that it brought back memories for them, I think, because it was so realistic. They an art department and everyone in production had gone to such great lengths to recreate the actual scene visually. You know, the Pepsi cups on the piano and uh, the white monitor speaker wedges on stage and everything was really well done. And of course, Rami's amazing performance and... I do recall at one point I, I hit stop and Brian was sitting next to me and um, Brian May and he was just staring at Gwillem on the screen, Gwillem who plays him in the film. I said, are you okay, Brian? And he, he said, I just cannot believe what I'm seeing. It, that is me, you know, 30 years ago, whatever. He didn't know what to say. He was absolutely in shock and it was a moment that was really very tender, to be honest. He mentioned how... It took him back to seeing Freddie perform on stage and, you know, being in his position most of the time behind Freddie, how Rami was taking him back to those days. And I think likewise for Roger, too. It was quite emotional for them. I'm sure it was. Yeah. Now, the Live Aid scene, I know, was condensed a bit in the final film for time, but I know you do have a full version of their 20-minute set from Live Aid. Are we going to see that anywhere? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I think a lot yeah. of fans would enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. First, the theatrical release. Uh, obviously, we have four songs in Live Aid, and those were edited down just for time, really, so that the film moved along. And then we went back because in the actual shoot, Rami and the whole cast did perform all six songs as originally performed at Live Aid in 85. So we went back in, and uh, we did, we've done an extended version of that entire sequence, so it now is very true to the original Live Aid performance. And it's quite remarkable. The, the addition of the extra two songs creates a, an incredibly exciting arc for the whole Live Aid performance. You can really see why Queen at the time chose to do those songs and in, in that order. It's a very, very exciting performance. So we mix that as an extra, and um, I believe it's included in the uh, DVD that's just been released. And I'm hoping that uh, it gets released as a, uh, an extended theatrical version too. Now that the film's been so successful, I think there's probably a very good chance that, that might happen. Now, when you found out that the premiere of the movie was going to be held at the Wembley Arena, that presented some additional challenges and required you to make another mix. Would you explain the purpose of that? Sure, yeah. The location for the premiere was Wembley Arena, which is right next to the Wembley Stadium original location. And the arena itself is a 12,000-seat indoor arena that was originally built as an Olympic swimming pool way back. As such, it's just a huge reverb chamber. And I was very, very concerned that all the detail in the mix was going to get lost for, this, for the premiere because we were playing it back over a huge concert PA with a massive screen for 8,000 people. So... I went to Fox and the producers and asked if I could go back into the original mix 
and reduce the stadium recordings and the reverb and the big perspectives that we had very deliberately put into the theatrical mix. I just felt like if we played a reverbed playback of the film into a huge echo chamber that was the premiere event, everything would just turn to mush right. and it, we'd lose all detail. So um, It was such a different venue than a movie theater that you would so expect totally to hear it different. I was really concerned and John Altman, the picture editor, was also very concerned about it. So very graciously, the producers and Fox did allow me to go in and, and create a dried up version, if you will, and just create a very upfront, in-your-face mix from our original mix that we could play back at the venue for 8,000 people and play it loud and proud on, on a huge concert PA that was at the venue. And it worked very, very well because the arena created its own stadium experience in real time. And I was very pleased we were allowed to do that. It was very good of everyone to allow us to do that. Now, Brian Singer was let go during production, and it sounds like you and the and John Ottman and the whole team really worked very closely together. But with that transition with the director, what were the added challenges that it presented to you and to John Ottman and Tom Siegel, the cinematographer, and the whole team? Well, I think we had to obviously step up and make our own decisions. You know, in any mix, uh, final mix environment, we're making a lot of decisions as mixes, editors, along with the producers and other filmmakers, even before we would present to a director who, who was present. And then, of course, we'd take the lead from the director. In this case, because um, the director was not present, we still did that, but we talked very closely about how to take each scene and what to do with it. John Ottman acted very closely with Dennis O'Sullivan, who's our executive producer, and Graham King. And, of course, we had the interaction with Brian May and Roger Taylor, so collectively, we just all stepped up to, to make those decisions amongst ourselves. And uh, that became what you see in here. Do you have a favorite scene in the film? I do. My, my favorite scene, well, there's a few. But I, I, I'm always really happy when we go to Bohemian Rhapsody live after the Kenny Everett studio Capital Radio scene. That's a great scene. It's a great transition. I was very happy with that. And we go to Bohemian Rhapsody live, and then it goes into Now I'm Here live. And it's just a very exciting moment in in an earlier part of the film. Galileo! Galileo Picardo! Galileo Picardo! Galileo What were some of the challenges to mixing that Bohemian Rhapsody scene? Well, that was really an, an era where, within the context of the story, Freddie and the band have, have just told uh, Mike Myers as the executive of the EMI that they want to release Bohemian Rhapsody as a single, and they've been told that EMI won't do that. So um, Freddie takes it to Kenny Everett, who was a famous DJ at the time at Capitol Radio, and gets Kenny to play it. So it's very successful for them, and I wanted to show for almost the first time in the film, that their sound was becoming very polished and they were, they were becoming very well-liked by huge audiences and that they were on extensive tours and becoming very accepted. So as we transition out of the beginning of Bohemian Rhapsody, we make a very hard cut into a, a live performance. And I wanted that to be finessed as a concert-going experience to bring across massive excitement that we hadn't actually seen previous to that in the film. 
so I guess one of the challenges was to get great impact from the actual song itself and the variations because it was a live, originally a live recording that we were using, but also introduce the spaciousness of the auditoriums that they were then starting to tour in and the interaction with the crowd. I especially like the transition out of that song, Bohemian Rhapsody Live, into Now I'm Here, because we were able to use Dolby Atmos very, very effectively with repeats on the intro vocal that Freddie sings, which is relatively quiet to the actual body of the song, and then the body comes in when the downbeat hits. It's just massive, and it was really as loud and as spacious and as wide and rich as we could possibly get. It's a great, I, I really like that contrast. Do you have a favorite Queen song? <laughs> I actually really like Innuendo, but um, that's not featured in the film. So Seven Seas of Rye is a huge favorite for me. And while we were mixing, I could not get that out of my head. I would, I would wake <laughs> up at three in the morning, four in the morning, five in the morning. And every time I woke up, that was still in my head and honestly still is many, many months later. So for some of your fellow sound professionals, what were some of the key plugins and other tools that you used when you made the film? As a mixer, I'm not really, I, I don't really mix in the box, quote unquote. I, I like to use more traditional hardware surfaces. So I'm, I use Harrison console extensively and we mixed all of the dialogue and music on a, a Neve DFC in the final mix. So for me, the Pro Tools is more of a, a playback medium and a record medium. I use very, very minimal plugins myself, such as RX-6 on Dialogue, um, speakerphone occasionally. That was left more to John Warhurst and Nina Hartstone as uh, editorial to utilize their favorite plugins before it even got to me. I'm, I'm much more of a traditional quote-unquote mixer in terms of wanting to have a hardware service in front of me. I just find it a lot more intuitive to my way of thinking. And what are you working on now? I just started Ford versus Ferrari for Jim Mangold. It's about the uh, Le Mans race in 66 and the battle between um, Ford and Ferrari as they developed their different cars with uh, Shelby America and, and Ferrari, of course. It's a really exciting film and I'm, I'm looking forward to final mixing it in the next few months. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations on the film. Thanks very much, Caroline. Pleasure. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.